London Business Schools Reunion brings together the school's alumni to reconnect with classmates and be inspired by expert faculty. The 2019 event featured a session on people and innovations that are changing the world. It was led by Yanis Yanu, Associate Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship. On the panel, three standout alumni, Misha Engineer, Oriol Fuentes Cabasa, and Hussein Kanji, discuss the ways in which they are having an impact on the world, majorly through innovations and a focus on people, customers, and patients. My name is Yanis. I've been to LBS almost a decade now, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome today this very distinguished panel here. My objective is to minimize my talking time. I'd only ask uh, questions and because I'm intrigued, and trust me, you have a lot of interesting and fascinating things to hear uh, from Misha, from Oriol, and from Hussein here. On the panel, we have a very, very good broad uh, representation of uh, sectors, but importantly of uh, uh, the theme, which is uh, change, people, and innovations that really carry the potential to change the world. So at the first round, the question that I'm going to address to all of my panelists is essentially to tell us a bit about themselves, both uh, in their sort of professional capacity in what they are doing within their own sectors, but also to tell us a bit about, indeed, their very interesting personal stories of how they came to do what they're doing uh, today. So maybe, Misha, if we can start with you. Thank you very much. Thank you and welcome. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. I started out my career as a medical doctor and um, I worked in the NHS and I then had a career transition to working in my family business, which was a medium-sized generics business base just outside of London. I then came to LBS to do my MBA and uh, just after graduation, myself and my husband set up our first business, Fontas Health, which is um, a branded generics business. And so that period of time was extremely tumultuous. It was a real roller coaster ride, as I'm sure may resonate with some of you. And so I really didn't have very much passion for medicine. And I suppose I trained because these were dreams of my father. And I was young and impressionable at the time. But I was very fortunate when I was doing my medical training to be able to take a year out mm -hmm. and do something called an intercalated BSc. And I transferred from UCL to Imperial to do a degree in management. So I did all sorts of modules, health economics, politics of the NHS, entrepreneurship strategy. And I absolutely loved all of these components. And I really saw myself using um, these tools in my career in, in the future. So I remember almost at the time I was finishing saying, well, I'm going to phone home and tell home about this decision. And I was met with real negativity and I was told to get my head out of the clouds. And so I did. I went away really disappointed and thought, OK, this is my, my destiny. So I finished med school, then I subsequently worked in the NHS just because I'd invested so much time and effort by this point. So I thought, I might as well try it. <laughs> and I did it, and it was really as I had envisaged. It just wasn't for me. I just didn't have the passion for it. So I ended up going to work uh, with my family, my family business. And there were many wonderful parts of that journey as well. I learned an awful lot because I transitioned through lots of different departments. And so I really learned what the infrastructure of a good pharmaceutical company should look like. Mm -hmm. But again, it wasn't for me. It was far too paternalistic, and I just knew that there was a ceiling for me. 
And so I came here, really, to give myself an opportunity to think about what I wanted from my life and my career. And that ended up being entrepreneurship. And so that transition period from family business to coming here, and I was still working with my family at that point in year two here, and then to setting the business up was a very emotionally difficult time for me because my family was against me leaving mm -hmm. them and starting up alone. Mm -hmm. And also, it was a very financially difficult time for myself and my husband because we'd put all our savings into this new business. Right. And again, it wasn't enough to set up the business just by ourselves. We had to bring on three <laughs> other business partners and shareholders um, in order to do that. So we set Fundus Health up in 2012, and this was a, and still is, a branded generics business. And our vision and mission was to sell healthcare products to the NHS cost-effectively, to make products available, essential and quality products available to as many people that needed them as possible. And we also pledged not to raise prices, as so many other pharmaceutical companies unscrupulously do. And I think we gained a lot of organic growth because of these messages and um, a lot of trust was put into us from a very early stage. And as more clinical commissioning groups um, took our products on, our business grew. And we're very happy to say that after six years of organic growth, we just sold out to our last remaining shareholder in November 2018. So we're very excited about that. And we now work on our other R&D businesses as well as pharma services businesses. Mm -hmm. Quite a fascinating story, and I'm going to return uh, when we start talking about the, essentially what you described as transitions, right, from uh, a doctor to the, the family business and then to plunging into entrepreneurship. And I, I want to kind of explore a bit more of those transitions, but very quick follow-up. So the focus of your the business you just sold, like the cost effectiveness, where would you say, where would that come from? Is it because of your observation what other pharmaceuticals were doing? Is, what, uh, is it like lower access to drugs that propelled you to focus on the cost effectiveness? What was the drive for that, one could say, the more sort of impact-oriented component of, uh, of the business? How did that come about? Yeah, sure. I, I think working, my husband's also a doctor, and we both worked within the NHS. Mm. So ultimately, you want to do good for as many people as possible. And I think that was really our driver. Mm -hmm. And access for patients for good quality medicines was really important for us. And so many companies around us were buying products from Big Pharma, raising prices unscrupulously. Mm. That means that the government here or other healthcare providers in other countries just say, hang on a sec, we just can't afford these products. So who loses out? Patients lose out. And that's absolutely what we didn't want to happen. We wanted to make the most essential products the most, and the most quality products available to as many people um, mm -hmm. as possible. Mm -hmm. I have more questions, but I, I will uh, now, because one interesting thing then, since you sold the business, is potentially how did you or how do you ensure that that you know, mission or vision is continued? Uh, but we'll get to that as we get perhaps another transition. Oriol? Well, very, very happy to be here. I studied economics in Barcelona and then I joined a consulting firm. I worked at uh, McKinsey for 10 years, roughly, only in healthcare. So first in Madrid, then in London for advising NHS and, and medtech companies. And in the middle of that, I did a couple of things. I think one was work for the Vice Minister of Health in Spain, in one of the regions in Catalonia. So I was advising her for a year. So I was seconded as a public servant. And two, I did the MBA, and I really took time to think what I wanted. And what I realized during the MBA is that the function I was trying to optimize in my life 
was direct social impact divided by hours worked. And what I realized was that I will always work a lot because <laughs> it's who I am. So then I realized that at McKinsey, I have a lot of impact, sometimes social, but it's never direct. Right? So I said, OK, what can I do to change this function? I want to have a lot of impact. I want it to be social, and I want it to be from myself. So the only way was to continue learning from McKinsey, really learned a lot, you know, helped set up the practice in Spain for healthcare. And then one year ago, I jumped. I, of course, asked uh, permission to my wife that sits here. And she <laughs> said, yeah, I'm going to support you. So I left McKinsey and set up Kida, which is a home care startup in Spain that has a dual mission, if you want. One is to deliver the best or the world's best uh, home care service for chronic patients so they can live longer at home, and two, return the social status to the caregivers. And so essentially what we said is we will choose to not choose between economic and social impact, and we think that's the strongest argument within the business, right? So we understand that the biggest cost in a business which is around home care delivery is churn of caregivers. And they churn because they are not well trained and they churn because they are not well paid. And so what we essentially do is we train them and we pay them 15% more than anyone. And what we're trying to do is to generate a movement first starting in Spain that advocates for quality and really returning the social status to them. So it's been a year, lots of good things, some challenges, which of course we can talk. In a year, we've achieved a few things. We did around 150,000 hours of care. So we, we helped a lot of people already. We raised the biggest funding round in home care in Spain. And we are now around 300 caregivers and 21 people full-time working in the business. So I don't feel I've achieved my mission, uh, which is optimize this function. I don't think you know it's a function that never has an end. But I, but I do feel more proud than where I was before, and I really feel every day is worth it. Yeah, I mean, as a recovering economist, I, I'm really intrigued by the idea of my life as an optimization function. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, as long as you have the right variables, of course, but let's not go to technical discussion. So a bit on the, on the uh, again, why this particular sector? I mean, you mm -hmm. mentioned that you had experience, but obviously mm -hmm. that's a broad sector you had experience. Why this particular aspect of the sector? Yeah. What propelled you to go into that? Yeah, so it was actually more of a professional story than a personal one. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, I had a grandpa that was struggling to find a caregiver, and it was a very non-transparent market. Yeah, I've got that story. But the real story was that I had done, like, 15 strategic plans for countries on healthcare, and they all say the same. Mm -hmm. They all say community should be more resilient, acute hospitals should be only for urgent and acute things, and we should digitalize the relationship with patients. They all say the same, right? Yeah. It doesn't happen, or it doesn't happen at the pace I want it to happen. So it came from that frustration of writing over and over and advising over and over on something that I said, why don't I just do it? Like, why don't I set up something that aims to keep patients at home and they don't show up at hospital unless it's really necessary? And so to me, it boils down also to cost effectiveness, right? We know how much is the cost of one night at hospital, and we know how much is the cost of one night at home. So we might as well keep patients at home while they can. Yeah. And it was a belief that, as everyone here, there is only one truth. We will only live once. And so I said, well, I've got one life, so I might as well do something with it. And so that was the personal side of it that I said I need to achieve this. 
Great, wonderful. I'll, I'll return back, as I said, because I can yeah. also already hear the commonalities. I'm, I'm really want to explore that, let's call it the period of uncertainty, where mm. it looks like it might work or it might not. So I really wanted to, to, to go a bit deep into enablers of, you know, living through that period, but also uh, personal as well as perhaps institutional. Mm -hmm. Hussein? Yeah, so, so my career has been probably a series of accidents, mostly happy accidents, I think. So before I went to college. I, I went to college at Stanford uh, on the West Coast. I spent a summer on Wall Street on a derivatives desk. I, I never realized as like a 17-year-old kid how much money people actually made and that just didn't register, but I hated the job. I thought it was like horrendously inefficient. I, I thought, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as interesting as I thought it was going to be. And so that permanently scarred me uh, as a young impressionist, <laughs> 17-year-old, and I vowed I was never going to Wall Street, so that option was out. I got really interested in design when I was an undergrad. In my freshman summer, I ended up interning at a design firm. We were one of the earliest web design firms on the internet. Uh, we were in the same building as Wired. You know, this is like super early days, like the summer of 1995. So then uh, the fall of 1995, a couple of folks from that company left and said, we're going to do our own company. Do you want to come and join us? So I ended up kind of you know, participating in the founding of a company when I was still in college in my second year. I ended up commuting back and forth between you know, Palo Alto and, and, and San Francisco because that's where the company was. Uh, we ended up having a successful exit my junior year to KPMG, who bought it, uh, and it became kind of their web development uh, shop. I then got recruited into another big tech company, uh, which is Sun Microsystems. I was in their advanced technology group. I, I didn't know very much. I mean, I was a junior in college, but the fact that I'd been doing stuff in, in tech and on, on the website meant that they, they thought that I knew something. I spent two years with them, had a lot of fun, and then decided I want to kind of go build my own company. I set that up right before the collapse of the dot-com bubble, which is bad timing. Talked to a lot of venture folks, got really interested in the venture community because I thought it was a great job. They basically get paid to do nothing. They just sit across the table, ask you interesting questions, have no stress, and I was like, that's what I want to do when I grow up. You know, I ended up interviewing with a big venture fund. And, and the advice I got from the partner there was, look, this is a useless job for you. You should go off and do real things in your career and come into a firm as a, as a partner versus, versus someone younger because, you know, they're just going to churn you out and, and, and you're not going to do very much uh, in, in those two years that you, wouldn't, that you would just do in a company. Uh, ended up going and joining a friend's company, which, you know, raised a bunch of money to go solve a problem that nobody had, which is uh, building streaming infrastructure well before YouTube. So we were building all this infrastructure to move video files around the internet, but we were five years ahead of the market and you can kind of imagine how that movie ended. We kind of ran out of money. We were able to sell it to Comcast, but it wasn't a very good acquisition. We Investors got basically a third of their capital back. And then one of my angel investors in there, who's also a professor of mine at Stanford, had this great idea for a company. It was post-9-11. And he was, you know, there's this technology that is in a research lab in the U.S. The U.S. runs a series of national research labs, uh, mostly for military, and they're, they're managed by a company called Battelle. He knew some of the executives at Battelle, so this was the Pacific Northwest Labs. And he said, let's go, let's go get that IP and turn that into a company. And that IP is, is probably the only one of my products you would have ever seen, which is when you go through airport security, there's an x-ray machine, and usually very close to the x-ray machine is a much bigger machine. Uh, it has two yellow feet pad. You put your hands above your head. It kind of spins around you. So that, that was our machine. The simple thesis was we were going to go commercialize that, bring the cost way down so that you could actually sell this to airports, and that airports post 9 11 should buy this as a, as a security machine. We sold six 
globally, mostly to Eastern and Central European countries. The company was also going to run out of cash, but it got an acquisition offer uh, for a big number by L3, who bought it for about $135 million. So it was a, it was a good outcome for, for everybody, including the small seed investors. The company that then bought it, you know, tried to sell this stuff. And I think the next year they might have sold like 10. And the following year, I think they sold like 20. Uh, and it took like four years or three and a half years. But then it became, it kind of became a standard in the U.S. market. And they've sold hundreds of millions of this product now. So I think they're, they're very happy, but it takes a long time to build these companies. I moved up to Microsoft because a lot of folks who were around me said, you need to go learn how a big tech company works. You have a lot of small company experience, but you don't really know how to do anything. So go learn how to do it at a big company. And, and what you largely learn at a big company is how to navigate the politics of a big company. Because I think that's most of your life. I thought I would flunk out of Microsoft in six months. It took a lot longer. It was about three and a half years. You kind of get embedded in. And then the only way to get out of Microsoft was to apply to business school. It was like a forcing function for me. So I ended up coming here and I figured, you know, Seattle had rain, London had rain. I could deal with Seattle. I could probably deal with London. And London was a real city. Seattle is not. It was literally my logic for coming here uh, versus going anywhere else. And I came here and the same venture capitalist who told me years ago that I should not be a VC and go get a real job introduced me to a firm here and said, you should hire this guy. And I ended up taking a job the second month of business school. So we came out of orientation. We kind of had our first real month and I ended up having a full-time job. Officially, from a government perspective, it was not a full-time job because you're not allowed to do that in the student visa. Um, <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, it was a full-time job. And I basically, that, that, that as soon as I graduated, weirdly enough, I like did the milk round. They did all of that stuff because there's so much peer pressure, right? So I was like, all my friends are applying for McKinsey. I'm smart too. I should do the McKinsey IQ test. <laughs> what am I doing? I actually have a great job. <laughs> so I ended up joining Axel. It was a great firm, had you know, four wonderful years with them. It was going to be hard to kind of make partner and make the economics that I thought I deserved in a, in a reasonable amount of time. So I left uh, and I set up my own firm, uh, not knowing how difficult it is to set up a firm. It took us 39 months to fundraise and build our firm. There is very little institutional money. You go to a bunch of uh, investors and say, I want to go build this venture fund from scratch, and I want to go do early stage tech investing. And this is circa 2010, 2011, before Europe really had very many of these kinds of examples. It was very difficult to get money. Just as an anecdote, the Church of England runs a reasonably large endowment. That endowment's allowed to invest in venture funds in the US and in China and India. It's not allowed to invest in English venture funds because the Church of England has decided that England doesn't produce enough returns for the Church of England to allocate capital. <laughs> So that's, that's kind of what we have to like overcome over fundraising. But we, we got into business and then, you know, fortunately there weren't very many other folks in the market. That was kind of the arbitrage. Uh, and so we wrote checks to a bunch of people. Some of those checks have turned out to be pretty good. So we were early investors in Deliveroo, which is now much more of a household name. We're early investors in Babylon, which is turning into a household name. We're early investors in the cybersecurity company called Darktrace. Uh, our fund returns are good. Uh, you know, if you add up the value of our portfolio companies, it's in the billions, which is nice. I don't think we were particularly smart or clever or did anything interesting. We just showed up. That usually gets you pretty far. Uh, and then we raised another fund to go do this all over again. So uh, we're, we're doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> Great. So let me go to Oriol. I'm guessing that after 10 years in McKinsey, mm. you could have felt that you can solve any problem. But uh, <laughs> when you did decide to venture out of mm. on your own, this, uh, what was your experience in that respect? So I think at a personal level, what I found was, what I learned on day one was that definition of difficulty is completely different than the one at McKinsey. And that was the biggest learning to me. I consider in my previous life or previous world, I was solving pretty tough problems. 
with almost infinite resources. You know, you're struggling, you just bring an associate. You're struggling, you just bring a partner. You're struggling, you just bring an expert. You've got unlimited resources, right? Problems are tough, resources are unlimited. But I went to a startup, I had 30K, in the, <laughs> my own 30K, right? Or 90K at some point, and myself, and one employee, right? And we say, I mean, what I need to do is pretty simple. I need to find one carer in Barcelona. Simple, right? Yeah, but when you need to find a thousand and you have 90K, that's not that simple. So I think the biggest learning for me is that the definition of difficulty changes. And for me, it's the gap between what you need to achieve and the resources you've got. And that, mm -hmm. that maybe they teach at business school was like a massive learning on day one. So that's, that's that. Mm -hmm. At a personal level, what helped me make the transition was that I didn't have much to lose. And I don't think many people have much to lose, depending on personal circumstances. But at that time, I said, look, I was 31, more or less had saved something. I can come back if I want to the firm. So why don't I just try it? So I said the worst thing that can happen is that I need to come back or I can get another job. And I don't think people will look at me as a loser. Some people will, but good for them. You know, <laughs> I, I, I won't have that problem. I'm sure someone will want to hire me. So that really helped me jump, yeah. like I, I would say. At the institutional level, I think there is much more money going into tech startups than social impact startups. Sometimes they are combined and great, but mm -hmm. there is, at least in Spain, that's the situation. Like to put things on perspective, there is only one fund, no, two funds now invest <laughs> with a total size of 30 million more or less in Spain looking into social impact. Of course, it's growing a lot because five years ago there was none, so growth is infinite, but in terms of absolute numbers, there's not a lot of money there, right? So what helped to me at institutional level was the network. LBS network, previous job network, to raise the funds. And one of the things I did on, on day one, maybe I did one of those things that people say not to do, but I did a PowerPoint. That was the only thing I <laughs> knew how to do. So I set up a PowerPoint. <laughs> I put a nice picture of mine, and I said, this is what I'm, I'm here to achieve, and we got the money. So at the institutional level, what helped was the network, really. And I think they were investing in the team and the vision. So that's, that's what, what helped. Great. Shane, I have two questions for you. So the first one is you described a lot of transitions in that career. So uh, if I were to ask you to reflect back and which one was the period in, in those transitions that you felt most uncertain about the future? And then second of all, what are the challenges of identifying perhaps as a venture capitalist those opportunities that do hold that potential? And and be interesting if, uh, as you address that question, to talk about the difference that you might have seen between the UK European context versus the, the US context as well. Yeah, so so I think anytime you're starting a business, you, you end up believing a fundamental truth that no one else in the world probably believes, right? You think you're right, the rest of the world is kind of wrong, and you you're convinced that you're right for a bunch of reasons. So we were pretty convinced when we were forming Hoxton that there were going to be big billion-dollar businesses built in tech in, in Europe. Like, we were 100% convinced about this. And the reason why, and we had some real reasons for this, was if you think about historically, the reason why you can never produce these kinds of outcomes in Europe is Europe is not homogenous. It's, it's a bunch of different countries. They're so different that to go from one to the next requires so much infrastructure. When Facebook came out, when the App Store came out, and then Google's been around for a while, all of a sudden you actually had like a common platform that you could build on top of, and it really didn't make a difference where you were starting the business from as long as you could exploit that kind of common graph underneath to get customers. And this is why we thought Europe would produce businesses. We've always had plenty of like 
IQ and talent and, and, and great people, but we were curtailed by this, you know, by this market that, that is not big enough compared to the U.S. or compared to China. No one else in the world believed us. And, you know, when you're trying to articulate this, you're forward projecting something and explaining the rationale, right? When you go to institutional investors, you know, they're asset allocators and they're looking on a backwards basis, right? They want to see what you've done, what, you know, they're, they're allocating capital, you know, to folks who are going to be stewards of that capital based on kind of past performance. And you're effectively selling a business plan to someone who's not a venture capitalist, right? To someone who's an asset allocator. It doesn't go very well. Now, the best advice I would ever give to someone who's building a business is it, it really helps to be young and it helps to be naive. Because if you know usually what, how hard it's going to be, you, you wouldn't do it. It's overwhelming. So about 24 months into our fundraising journey, we'd, we'd expected that this would take about a 12 to 18-month journey. And so, you know, give it an extra six months as kind of buffer. At 24 months, we had a real crisis of confidence. And the only reason why it worked out is we basically sat around and we're like, look, it's taken 24 months we don't want to fail. So if we walk away now, which is the rational thing to do, because it's been 24 months and we've basically raised, I think, something like five or six million bucks, right? So no one wanted to give us money. But if we do this, then we have basically nothing to show for the last two years. So we might as well keep trying and try and get this thing done. And it took another 39 months. We had no idea when this thing was going to close. And we were able to close. It was a decent amount when it finally actually happened. But, you know, that was the moment of panic, right? It's like we're, we're, we're literally like two years in. You have no income, right? You've burned through your savings. You know, you've allocated accordingly for this, but now you're drawing into, you've probably drawn into your reserves a little bit. Now you're really, you're, you're kind of on fumes, right? And, and you want to kind of stay in this. And I think a lot of like really great people who build businesses end up like digging deep and like persistence, I think, really makes a big difference, right? And I think it would have been very easy to walk away and, and entirely rational and then who knows where we would have gone. And we, we weren't ex-McKinsey, so we didn't have an easy <laughs> career track to go back somewhere else. But we stayed in. And so, you know, the second question, you know, how we think about businesses. So it helps a lot to be in the right market. Like, we really do believe this, right? And, like, markets that grow exponentially, including ourselves, right? Our thesis was Europe would produce businesses. You know, in the mid-2000s, like, when we were building our slides... We had to come up with logos, right, to show people examples of companies. And, and you could come up with Skype, and that was it. Like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a very powerful presentation. And we're not McKinsey people, so we don't know how to do decks, right? So uh, today, there are like 70-plus unicorns in Europe, right? So it, it's a showing up in the place where the business actually really matures, you know, makes your life so much easier. So I think we look a lot for that. The biggest difference that we see in between kind of what happens in Europe and what happens in America, Americans think about how to build scale and how to solve for scale. And they think about the cost not of losing their capital, but the cost of losing an opportunity that could turn into a lot of capital. Europeans think about protecting their capital. And if you think culturally, right, there's a ton of wealth in Europe that's multi-generational. If you're multi-generational wealth, you need to preserve that capital for the follow-on generations, right? If you're American capital, a lot of it's like first or second generation, and you want to turn that capital into as much capital as possible for the future, you're, you don't have like this big kind of multi-generational kind of community. And so, you know, one of our companies was fundraising, and every European investor that they talked to said, okay, we see the business, we see it's growing, you know, how quickly can you guys get to profitability? 
And they went and talked to one of the best firms in our industry is Benchmark. They're the early investors in Uber as well as eBay, as well as we, you know, um, uh, WeWork and Snapchat, right? And the, and the Benchmark guys are, look, your business is working. Like, how do we take a big, heavy brick, which is called capital, and put it on the accelerator? And can you drive the car fast enough and avoid all the collisions to kind of get to the end point, right? But we want you to step on the gas by like an order of magnitude, which, by the way, breaks all kinds of other things inside the company. And so that becomes your constraint, not the capital. So the capital is fuel. Europeans don't think this way. And it's a huge cultural difference. And by the way, the other region that does think this way, probably even more so than America, is China, which is why China has such a great tech economy now, like, you know, only 15 or 20 years in. This past quarter, they raised more capital. There's more money in China than there is in the U.S. now. They have more of a gambling mindset, but there's just a lot more expansion. Now, it also helps that in China, you've gone from, like, a very nascent middle class to like a 600 million, 700 million person middle class, right? So it's, you know, the, the scale is just totally different. Mm -hmm. uh, so that also helps. But that, that's a huge cultural divide, I think, between the two places. Mm -hmm. And how about the supply of opportunities? So you talked about essentially the supply of capital and different attitudes. Do you see any differences on the supply of opportunities across the regions? No, no. So, so I don't think Europe... Look, Europe has really great research universities. Europe has really great people, right? There, there are tons of smart people that graduate from everywhere. There's tons of experience. You know, ideas, I think, these days, are they're geography agnostic, right? They can come from anywhere. The two limiting factors, usually, in turning an idea into a really powerful business is capital, which I just spoke about, and then talent. And when I say talent, it's not the folks who found the companies, and it's not the rank and file who you hire right out of university to kind of fuel the companies. It's everything in between. Mm -hmm. And that largely, in, in our industry, in the tech industry, you tend to hire from within the tech industry, right? So you could take a company, and like, sorry to dig on McKinsey, but like, you could take a company and fill it with like 100 McKinsey people, and you could take a company and fill it with 100 Google and Facebook people. If they're working on the same idea, I can guarantee you 100% of the time, the Google and Facebook company is going to beat the McKinsey company. And it's not because the McKinsey people are dumb. They're super high IQ, super high ability, but they don't have the same experience of building a tech company that the Google and Facebook guys do, mm -hmm. or girls. So, you you know, the challenge, I think, in Europe is we don't have those pools yet, and we're still in the early days. So you end up having to either import that pool. Now, at the senior management level, you can import that talent. But at the middle management level, it gets harder, right? Because that's you can't import like 100 middle managers if you're going to grow to 1,000 people. So that's probably the single biggest gating factor that we have in Europe right now. Mm -hmm. Capital... As you get bigger and bigger, it's fungible, it's global, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Ideas have never been the bottleneck here, not in the last 10 years. This talent thing is, to me, is like the single biggest bottleneck. Right. So I basically want you to look into the future a little bit. And, uh, you know, for, for the sectors that you know well, if someone asks you, what are some of the major big ideas or innovations that you see within your own sector that are only now beginning to sort of be shaped, take shape and so on, and have the potential to really fundamentally shift the industry, to change the world, as the title of this panel is, what would you identify as some of those big ideas and innovations within your sector and that you're, of course, optimistic and hopeful about, that they can change the world? So for me, I think these innovations have to focus on accessibility. I've been talking all about accessibility the whole time, but for us it's really important to, to make sure that as many people that need it mm -hmm. get accessible treatments. And I think a way to do this is through artificial intelligence and there's you know we, we see this all the time with wearable tech more and more companies are coming out with amazing new technologies that anybody can 
wear and use. And I think also, <coughs> now more than ever, we've got a cross-section of society, regardless of socioeconomic status, although these are still issues, that are more informed mm. than we've ever been before, because yeah. we have access <coughs> to various apps, we have access to information that, like we've never had before, and I think mm. AI will really drive yeah. things forward in our industry. So are you seeing already uh, that being picked up by the traditional players, or do you think that that wave is going to be uh, more taken advantage by new startups or new entrepreneurial ideas? Do you think the existing players are capable of following that trend, or do you think it's going to be a combination? I think the most change will come from new entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. new startups, because I think the old big corporates are still stuck, mm -hmm. but I think they're also realising that they're not innovating, yeah. so they need to find <coughs> new revenue streams, and I think they look at this, and I think people like J&J &J are really looking hard mm. at this area, but I'm not sure who's going to overtake who. I think the... Yeah. the right. Looking and adopting are two different... Yeah. yeah. Great. Oriol, how about your sector? So I think it will be... A, I actually agree with AI. AI applied to prevention mostly and AI applied to simple diagnostics. I think a lot of money is spent, could be saved more than it's spent today, right? Like the more population is aging and it's a reality today, mm -hmm. the more activity shows up in the door of the hospital or the GP that is not needed to be there. Mm -hmm. And maybe not the people that are showing up today can use all the apps, and we see Babylon is a reality today. It's not like something is going to happen in 20 years, like it's a reality today. Mm -hmm. So I can see how AI can help diagnose much quicker, and I can see how other technologies can help us prevent from us uh, showing up uh, with acute episodes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's one element. The other one is um, everything that has to do with IoT at home. I can see how more and more we can be more intelligent on what are the patterns, that, like when people eat, when people drink, when people sleep, mm -hmm. when people go to bathroom, and that allows us to understand what is going on in that person, and that allows us to be more proactive on how to take care. But that's something that five years ago I would say it's the future, but I can see a lot of it already happening today. Well, I'm tempted for both of you to start asking the question of data and privacy and all that, but I think mm. we might need another panel to go there. <laughs> uh, the way you described it, uh, it was a bit big brother to me, yeah, yeah. you know, where you sleep, when you eat and all that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bit on the scary side. Hussein, in, in, in many ways, you know, the, the role of venture capital and allocation of capital is, you know, to allow these guys to scale up uh, the, the ideas and have the impact. But, do, I mean, looking forward uh, on these AI trends and, and broader tech trends, do you see anything, not only on the trends of the technologies themselves, uh, but perhaps on the challenge of the venture capital industry itself uh, you know, going forward in terms of identifying these opportunities? And do you foresee any changes in the structure of that industry going forward? I mean, the industry has certainly evolved, uh, and right now the biggest topic in the industry is diversity and just how you solve this. Because if you look, most most partnerships are, are groups of you know white males, and and that that has to change because the money then gets funneled into other white males. So you know, and but the industry is being reflective about this and thinking about it. The actual structure and mechanics, you know, the model was kind of pioneered in the '60s and really kind of hardened in the '70s. It's kind of the same. I mean, there are people doing kind of. Slightly extending it by offering kind of a services layer. That's kind of what Andreessen Horowitz does. But you know, generally speaking, it's a small group of folks 
who sit around the table, who listen to good ideas and then, you know, write a check and kind of say a little prayer and hope it goes down the right way, right? And find the answer, you know, five to 10 years down the line. There's not much of a way to, to change this. There are people nowadays using data to suck in information that's out there. There's a ton of data that's out there. You know, you can get app usage data, you can get Facebook data, you can kind of get Google trend data, right? You can get crunch based data. So you can guide that. But, you know, in the early stages, there's not that much, right? I mean, you know, even the one thing that you kind of know is if someone presents a business plan to you, all the numbers that they've written in, they're all kind of garbage. And, you know, I, you, hopefully they're garbage the wrong way, as in the company surpasses everything. But, like, any, like, three-year or five-year projection is kind of entirely made up at that point. It's an exercise just in, in showing that the person's thinking about it. And all the value in a DCF is in terminal value. And, you know, God knows what terminal value is for any of these companies. You know, if self-driving takes off and Uber misses it, right? You know, there's the value of Uber kind of poof in an instant. You have no idea of knowing any of these things up front. So you're kind of taking a belief in the person and the market mm-hmm. and you'll kind of figure out everything else downstream and you can you can kind of figure out what the next 12 or 18 months are. Yeah. So there's, but there are always changes, right? Right now we're in a, we're in a really bullish market. There's a ton of capital flowing in. It makes life good for us on the one hand because there are companies that are scaling, right? That's easier and easier for them to get capital, it screws all kinds of other things up because you have a lot of dumb money in the system and a lot of irrational things kind of happen as a result of that. But this will change and we'll go back to dark times. But, you know, the, the general model, which is like finding great companies and writing them a check, kind of stays the same. And are there any particular, let's say, subsectors within the tech sector and the investments that you're looking at without revealing all of your secrets, but any any subsectors or technologies that you're particularly optimistic about and, and you think that those are the technologies or the innovations that have huge transformational potential going forward? Yeah, so this might also explain why we don't get any money from institutional investors. We do now, but we didn't. We, we genuinely don't know. I have no idea what I'm going to do in like three months or six months or what kind of check I'm going to write. My job is not to be that smart. My job is to when someone really smart comes in and articulates for a vision for where the world is going, to ask a bunch of questions and to kind of validate that. And then if I believe that's the way the world is going and that's the big new market, I would write the check. If I could figure out what that big new market is, I'd go off and build it myself. Why would I fund someone? And so I, I don't know, right? I think I'm about to do a check. I have a term sheet. I haven't signed it yet. Into a DNA origami company that's basically trying to build a circuit board, something conceptually similar to a circuit board, and then trying to build next generation enzymes and additives that are 100 to 1,000% faster than anything else on the market. If you had asked me that like two weeks ago, I would have never told you I was looking at, I would never look at that kind of company. But the more research, and it's literally been two weeks, the more research I've done in two weeks to kind of understand this, I can understand why this is theoretically possible now. I believe in the folks who are doing it. And I think if you actually build something like this, this could be like a really transformative, interesting company. And I'm willing to, you know, write a big check to find out if I'm actually wrong. Great. <laughs> Sounds like a good job. I might, uh, anyway. So uh, any questions for any or all of our uh, esteemed panelists? I believe there's, uh, there's questions over there. Just to Hussein, um, so UK talent, where do you think it's coming from now, school-wise or university-wise? I mean, if it's, if it's engineering-type talent, it's all the... Entrepreneurial 
more and it's 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 all over right i mean a lot of the well we start with lbs and then from, uh, <laughs> lower down lower down you can before. see from you know for number two below you can yeah <laughs> it's all over i mean how a lot a lot of the stuff that we see is probably not straight out of school it's folks who've kind of worked for a couple of years and then have gone off to do stuff but if you look you know they're all really educated they they might have mbas they might not right then they're driven by some kind of mission. No? Don't you, so your US, let's say, undergraduate is not doing a better job than the UK undergraduate in bringing out entrepreneurial talent? The biggest difference happened in 2008. So the financial crisis is probably the single best thing that this country benefited from on the entrepreneurial community. Because you know, there was a time where if you were an undergrad, like so put aside business school, but it was also true in business school as well, but a little bit less so. You know, if you graduated from like Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, et cetera, right, you went into the financial services sector or you went into consulting or maybe you went into a big company, right? post-financial crisis, I mean, that was harder to do and there wasn't that much money that you'd make in the financial services sector. So people started considering alternatives. And today, like, there are people who come out of all of those kinds of programs who are now very willing to either join companies or to go found companies. And that wasn't true prior to 2008. If you did that out of Oxford, like, in 2006, you were the oddball. Today, you're no longer the oddball. It's, like, very mainstream to be able to do that. And so... That was always true at Stanford for a long time, but now that's very true in many other places in the world. And some of these folks have gone off to go build really big businesses really fast, right? Like Monzo is a, is a young Oxford grad. It's his second company, but his first company did right out of Oxford, right? You know, we know it as a household brand now, so it encourages that younger generation to go do it themselves. The first generation, it's always hard to be the first person to kind of be on the path, but once the path's a little bit more beaten, right, people go off and do it. And today, I think you see a bunch of people going into these kinds of businesses, either forming them or joining them. Great. Any other questions? I saw a couple of other hands right over there. Hi, my name is Aisha, I'm MBA 2014, and I had a question about what are the key things, one or two things which you look for in an early stage company to invest in? An early stage company, some, a company which has some initial revenue and maybe one or two clients. We write it down on our website, it's not that much more complicated than that, but, but it's, um, we look for brand new markets, like we look for products and services that don't exist today for, or ha didn't exist in the past for a reason. Our view is if someone could have built something, they would have been built. The markets are efficient. You look for some underlying change, right? You could not have built an Airbnb without a social graph, right? So if you were going to have strangers, you know, it's much easier to know that they're kind of second degree or third degree strangers than if they're pure strangers, right? And then there was a cultural shift that was also happening where people were just much more open accepting of, of having strangers in their homes. So we look for evidence of new things. We look for if someone's building that product or service, especially out of Europe, they're going to win globally, uh, not just in the UK, because you're just going to be too small that way. And then we look for evidence that the folks who are founding the companies, I mean, it doesn't matter so much about them. It matters the kinds of talent that they attract to themselves. So if, if someone you know, is a young graduate and was able to convince like the entire department at Oxford to come and join them or you know a bunch of MBAs at LBS to come join them. You know, clearly, either they're super charismatic and leading people down a cliff, but probably they also have a really good idea that a lot of other smart people are buying into, and that's a really good signal for what they're doing today as well as probably how they're going to recruit into the future because you know these companies need people to kind of be able to build them up. So that's it, right? And you'd be surprised. I mean, that, that simple filter kind of out, you know, it eliminates a lot of the stuff that we end up looking at, but it's a pretty good heuristic for, I think, you know, investing in businesses that will grow into big companies. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Any other questions down here? 
Just a question for Misha. I guess you so you guys have just exited your business, and can you describe a little bit about the process that led to that exit? Was it some of the original investors that that ended up taking you out, or you know, and your thinking behind that? Were you pushed towards that, or were you looking for that? Yeah, it's a um, good question. We felt that so we during the process we had set up another business, and that's a pharmaceutical services business, and what we wanted to do is spend more time growing that and we felt like we'd really made a lot of change and done a pretty good job of growing organically pretty fast and that it was time for an another adventure so really we had a very good relationship with our business partner and we came to a decision over a few months that where he wanted to stay on so it, i mean that the history in the year prior was that we had been approached by three private equity firms who wanted to buy us out. And we went part of the way down the road with one of them and my business partner, who was at a different stage in his life. He's about 10 years older than us and he had already exited another business. And for him, he saw Fontas Health as a lifestyle business. And he wanted to go to the office every day and just carry on and, and grow that business himself. And for us, we were younger, we wanted to move on to, to another adventure. And so he eventually said, hang on a sec, why are we doing this? Why do we want to sell out to private equity? Why don't we just continue to grow? And we were, at that point, kind of disappointed. And so we said, look, well, why don't you buy us out? And that was an amicable. And in, uh, I guess in that manner, given that there's someone that's already in, you, you ensure the mission, the vision of the, of the original company continues. I yes. Guess. Any other uh, questions? I think we have time for one more. Yes. So my question is for Oriol. Um, at what point did you go out to seek external investment? And, you know, I just want to understand the thought process and what was the vision behind it. And then, you know, building upon that, if we could get your perspective on or your advice on at what point actually should the early stage or the later stage businesses should actually go out for external investment and till what point you know they should suffer themselves is if i can put it thank you so we went out on day two <laughs> <laughs> really on day one i figured out that difficulty is is defined differently and then on day two i figured out that what i needed was resources to put this idea and this vision and this group of people that we have gathered to work and to hire more people and so the thought process was something along the lines of the vision is very big, what we want is very big. To get there, we need people and we need tech and we need to invest on marketing. In order to do this, we need money and we don't have much time because there are competitors and a new crisis will come, I'm fairly sure, maybe I'm wrong, hopefully, in a year. That was the thought process. And so I said, look, I either raise now, hire great people, invest in marketing, build a tech, so that I get to the next round where I can raise more money before the crisis hit us or the crisis is going to hit us. That kind of was the... So on day two, say, I left McKinsey on the 1st of March and the 1st of April. So one month later, I started to do the investment process and I closed in November with around 1.2 million. So it's not, for Spain is a lot of money, for the UK maybe it's not a lot, but for Spain was quite a lot. And then with this money, we're doing these three things. 
and showing the metrics and stuff to raise the next round before the crisis hit. But then hit. Why, were you not under the pressure at any point of time mm. beyond just showing the slide deck that, okay, you know, we've seen you, w what have you done? So you no, no, massive, massive. So, so how, how are you running the business? So, you know, mm. this is the kind of chicken and egg situation. So mm. Absolutely. So between, very good question, between the four co-founders, we had actually different views. Like, there are two people that thought, look, we need to be unit economics positive from day one, yeah. right? To grow slowly, build a good product, and when we are ready, we go for funding. And then two of us thought, well, we're going to take a lifetime and we will run out of money if we yeah. try and do that. So we actually tried to do the two things at the same time. We tried to build a business not profitable, but we tried to build a business and we tried to raise funds. So what that meant is working very hard and prioritizing well. And then essentially trying to put the, the little bit of money that we had into fuel so the car runs faster. And every two weeks we were seeing the investors. And for example, I remember a meeting in end of April where I said, look, this business is worth X and I want Y. And they laughed. And I said, right, so if I come back in six months and I'm 12 times bigger, will you invest? And he said, yes. So I came back five months later, not six, and we were 18 times bigger. And he said, right, here is your check. So you, you kind of need a commitment also. If they believe in you, but they say you're too expensive and you think, no, I'm not too expensive, then you know, the little money that you gather, you put it in, into fuel. Something that really helped was to do convertibles. So we get a bunch of investors that gave us money and would be converted when the institutional investor got in. So with this money, we were getting more fuel to show growth. And then the final investors got in and put the price. So I found we had to do both things at the same time. Yeah. The deck was not enough. <laughs> it was very good, very good deck. Very good deck. It was very good deck and a lot of passion, but they said, but show me the numbers. Yeah, no, no, but we did, we did both. And on that powerful point, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid we, we did run out of time uh, today. Uh, Misha, Oriol, Hussein, thank you so much for coming and sharing your honest, exciting and optimistic stories with all of us. And ladies and gents, please join me in thanking uh, the panel for being here with us. This podcast was brought to you by London Business School, bringing you thought leadership from London Business School's global experts. For more insight and expert opinion, go to london.edu backslash LBSR.